Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. We are in part three of our series, God Encounters. A special shout out to those watching online as well. Thank you for carving some time out of your Sunday morning to hang out with us. Uh, I've been enjoying this series. I hope you guys have as well. Uh, But this is part three of our series, God Encounters, where we're looking at at some very powerful, life-changing encounters that people had with God. Because, see, we believe that everyone needs to encounter God at a far deeper and more intimate level than what can be accomplished by just coming here on Sunday mornings or attending a growth group. As important as those things are, still, even beyond those events, we feel like it's important to have more than just information. We believe the best way to understand God is to experience him. And the best way to experience God is through personal encounters. And so that's my prayer for you, uh, for us as a church, as we move further into this year, that you, that we might have more God encounters. And through those encounters that we would come to know him like we've never known him before. We begin our series looking at Jacob's encounter with God, where he wrestled with the Lord or, or this angelic being that represented the Lord and determined that he would not let go until the Lord blessed him. And as a result of that tenacity, as a result of that God encounter, Jacob's name was changed from trickster or deceiver to triumphant with God. Then last week, we looked at Moses' encounter with God and how through that God encounter, the Lord was able to to heal Moses of his identity crisis and help him see himself as God saw him, as the one chosen to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage. Now this morning... We're going to take a little bit different approach. Instead of looking at just one God encounter, since this is part three, we're going to look at three encounters. I couldn't make up my mind which one to share because they're all great and powerful lessons to be learned. But as we look at each of these stories, we're going to see that there's one common denominator that ties each of these God encounters together, and they all relate to worship. So before we look at each of these God encounters, I want to begin by looking at a statement that Jesus made once regarding worship. In John 4, 23, he said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the, huge word coming up here, true worshipers, which presumes there are false worshipers, right? Right? If there's true worshipers, then that presumes, though, maybe there's some that are not true. Someone, someone who's not worshiping God the way that God wants them to. People who think they're moving towards God when in reality, they're not. The time is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then look at this next statement. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Isn't that interesting? They are the type of worshipers that the Father seeks. In other words, if you're trying to find God, you need to know that God's trying to find you as well. Did you know that? How cool is that? 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord search back and forth across the whole earth, looking for people whose hearts are perfect toward or committed to him. Look at that. God is actually looking for, even drawn towards those who are looking for him. And that leads us to this morning's big idea. The big idea for this morning's message is this. If you can't find God, worship him, and he'll find you. Now, come on. It was worth coming this morning just for that, wasn't it? If you can't find God, then worship him and he'll find you. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards. Look at that. Rewards those who, say this next word with me, 
earnestly. Now, look, this is all skate. This is all skate. One more time. Earnestly seek him. Now, think about the implications of that statement. The idea that God is actually drawn towards, even attracted towards a certain type of person, one who earnestly seeks after him. In other words, God's looking for those people who, do, who will do whatever it takes, like Jacob. He was determined to hold on to God until he blessed him. Who will do whatever it takes to find him. And look, I've been doing this a long time, and here's what I've discovered. When it comes to a relationship with God, a lot of people give him the test drive first. They give God a test drive. They don't want to go all in until they, they find out what it's all about. Now, the only problem with that approach is it doesn't work with God. It might work for a car, but it doesn't work with God. That word worship, it's an interesting word. It's the, worst, the Greek word proskuneo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. That's the word that Jesus used here in, in John 4, 23. It was a word that was used in that first century culture to describe a kiss, okay? But, but, not a kiss between two lovers. This is really interesting. But a kiss like a, literally, like a dog would lick its master's hand. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Uh, any dog lovers? Any dog lovers here? Okay, yeah. Uh, anyone from our eCampus church, any dog lovers out there, go ahead and put a little dog emoji up there or something like, oh, Mike's raising his hand, right? Now, do you think about that? This word is amazing. Of all the words, think about of all the words that Jesus could have chosen to describe the type of worshipers that he's seeking and looking for, the word that he settled on was the same word that was used to describe in that culture how a dog would lick its master's hand. See, there, there are four times more Greek words than English words. So it's not like Jesus didn't have any options. But of all the options that he could have chosen, he used this word, proskuneo, a dog licking its master's hand. Really? Why, Jesus? Why that word? But, you know, the more you think about it, as a dog lover, it made more sense. I've got kind of a love-hate relationship with our dogs, uh, Misha and Macy. And the older they get, the more high-maintenance they become. And, and that, that kind of gravitates towards the hate than the love uh, relationship. But Sue and I have already decided, uh, once Misha and Macy are gone, we're not going to have any more dogs. No more dogs in the right household to God be the glory. But until then, we have these two little designer puppies that are part of our household. And anytime, anytime we come home, I'll open the, you know, open the garage door. You know, of course, they hear the garage door open. I open that door from the garage into the house, and you hear the click, 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 you know, the, those, you know, the, you know, pause, you know, click, click, click on, on, on the wood floor, right? Click, click, click. And, you know, they come up there, you know, and they come up. And, and of course, if you, if you, some of you know this, if you come to our growth group or if you've been to our house, Misha does this thing where we didn't teach her this. She just did, discovered this on her own. She'll get up on her hind legs and, you know, like, like she's trying to, you know, trying to climb up on me or something like that. And then, and then Macy, you know, she's not quite like that, but she, you know, they're trying to, you know, lick my hand, you know, and, and they're, they're like, oh, oh, our favorite people, you know, we could be gone for five minutes. We'll come back. Oh, oh, our favorite people are back home. And, and they have all this excitement and energy. That's the word. Think about this. That's the word that Jesus chose to use to describe the type of worshipers that he wants, the type of worshipers that he desires and the type of worshipers that he rewards. Your heavenly father is looking for people who wake up Sunday morning and are like, oh boy, it's Sunday. I get to go worship. And then you pull into the parking lot and your little feet are click, 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 you know, and then you come, you come walking in here into the sanctuary and, you know, and then April and Sam start singing, you know, and, and Joseph and, and Gage, they strike the guitar chords, you know, and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of worshipers Jesus is looking for, right? 
But some of you walk in here on Sunday mornings, look like you've been baptized in pickle juice. You walk past one of our first impressions team out there in the parking lot who are smiling, holding a sign and welcoming you. Yeah, whatever. Then you come in here. You don't say it, but you know, your body language is kind of like, you know, Sam and April start singing. Joseph, Gage, strike the guitar chords. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. Come on, you wouldn't even like a dog like that, would you? There's, There's a name for people like that. It's called a cat. You cat lovers, God help you. But you cat lovers, you know how cats are. You come home after being gone a while. That cat doesn't come clickety, 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 click. No, no, no. You open the door and the cat's laying down over there and looks up like you woke me up. All right? Cats are like, nah, I just gave myself a bath. I ain't moving. You come over here if you want some love. All right? You, you make me love you. That's how cats are, right? I'm telling you right now, you will never experience God the way that he wants you to if you approach him that way. Jesus said, I'm looking for worshipers who will earnestly seek me. He promises that if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. God is attracted to earnest, passionate worship. And this is what I'm praying for all of us, that that we'll come to the place of earnestly seeking Jesus in our worship. Because if you'll do that, listen, if you'll approach worshiping Jesus with the same passion, excitement, and anticipation that a loyal dog or dogs give their masters when they come home, no matter how long they've been gone, if you'll just lose yourself in his presence, not worrying about what the person down the aisle or in front of you is thinking, If you'll begin to approach your worship of God like that, it's a game changer, people. It is a game changer. So I want to look at three God encounters where God showed up in powerful ways when people began to worship him. The first one is a guy who had a name that only God and a mother could love. This is Jehoshaphat's story. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Verses 14 and 15. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite, and descendant of Asaph. Now, first lesson that we learn here is, mamas, don't ever name your kid anything with fat in it. That, that's just messed up. I'm sorry. But Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah at this time. One day, one of his messengers comes and tells him that, that he's just heard that not one, not two, but three enemy nations, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Meunites, were marching towards them. And unless God intervened, something horrible was going to happen to God's people. So, not surprisingly, Jehoshaphat's depressed. He's discouraged and desperate. But he does have the wisdom to call the people together, tell them what's going on, and declare a fast throughout the land that people might seek God and God's guidance and help. At some point during this town meeting, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon, now now watch this, this is important. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon not Jehoshaphat. He's too discouraged. He's too depressed. He's too bummed out, right? He's looking at the circumstances, and the circumstances tell him that he's got about 48 hours to live unless something happens, right? So God shows up through one of the Levites, a guy named Jehaziel. And keep in mind, the Levites weren't just spiritual leaders. They weren't just the preachers. They were also the worshipers. 
The Levites were the worshipers as well. And when it says that he, Jehaziel, was the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son, that, that's just the writer's way of letting us know, hey, this guy's legit. This isn't some Johnny come lately. This guy didn't just show up in town a week before and he's trying to make a name for himself. So he's trying to cheerlead and, and be an encouragement to the people. No, this guy came from a long lineage of people who had a history of hearing from God. All right, that's what that little, uh, uh, you know, son of, son of, son of is all about, right? In fact, we're told this guy Jehaziel was a direct descendant of a guy named Asaph. And Asaph, think about this, Asaph wrote some of the Psalms and Asaph was also King David's chief musician. In other words, he was David's worship leader. Asaph was the Josh Baldwin, the, the Corey Asbury, the David Crowder of his day. He came from, a, this guy Jehaziel came from a lineage of worshipers and had a worship heritage. God, think about this. God chose a worshiper to speak to his people that day. And this is what he told his people in 2 Chronicles 20, 15. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army for the battle is not yours, but God's. Through one of the worshipers, God tells his people, hey, don't be scared or discouraged. God's got this. Okay, question. Where did Jehaziel get all this positive energy, passion, and confidence, huh? Where did that come from? How come Jehaziel's got such a positive outlook knowing full well that unless something happens in the next 48 hours, he and everyone else in Judah are history? That's it. Yet knowing that, he still has the confidence to say, don't be afraid. How can he do that? I'll tell you how. Because he's a worshiper. That's why he see, he, he's seeing the same thing that Jehoshaphat sees, right? The three enemies bearing down on them, the three nations coming against them. But because he's a worshiper, he chooses to focus on God, not the circumstances. Man, y'all just missed a great place to say amen right there. Okay, that's kind of weak, but I'll let you build up to it. Let's read on in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, here, now here Jehaziel, the worshiper, called them out. He challenged them. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. So apparently Jehoshaphat accepted the challenge because look at his response in verse 21. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army. They're in front of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. So after praying and fasting, Jehoshaphat gathers all the people together the next day. Uh, the army, the worshipers, verse 13 says, even the women and children were gathered. So what more pitiful sight could there be there? Even the women and children were gathered there. God encounters them through the worshiper Jehaziel, tells them, don't worry, you know, don't be afraid. God's, God's gonna fight for you. The battle isn't yours, it's God's. So stand by and see the salvation of God. So after, after, this, after his God encounter, listen to King Jehoshaphat's strategy for going to battle. This is amazing. He tells his army, all those who are lined up in formation and ready to march out to battle, all those with the swords, he says, all, all you uh, army, get back here, and all the worshipers, get up here. All the worshipers get up to the front, right? And he instructs them, you worship leaders are going to lead us into battle, and when you march out, I want, I want you to praise the Lord for the splendor of his holiness. Now, can you imagine what this must have looked like to the troops of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Meunites. All these tough guys, these, these seasoned soldiers with swords and spears and shields and bows, and they're strategically positioned up in the mountains surrounding Judah, just waiting to pounce. 
And all of a sudden, they see the gate to Jerusalem open up. So they're anticipating this army coming out. And what do they see? They see the praise team. All the skinny jeans come marching out. What? Can you imagine? All the skinny jeans come out. Our God's going to kick your butt. Our God's going to kick butt and take names. Can you imagine their response in seeing that? Right? Now, why did Jehoshaphat do that? I mean, I doubt that he had ever used that strategy before. The reason that Jehoshaphat used that strategy, because the, the word of the Lord was, you don't have to fight. You're not going to have to fight. The Lord is going to win this battle for you. That's why he put the praise team, the worship leaders, up front. Right? So they march out before the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Mayanites. This is how we fight our battles. Right? Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Did it work? Did that strategy work? Well, let's read 2 Chronicles 20, 22. As they began to sing and praise the Lord, and they sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Now, we're not told exactly how this played out, but somehow, some way, these opposing armies became so confused in the heat of the battle that they began to turn on each other, and they all killed each other. My personal opinion is they were still bumfuzzled by seeing all the skinny jeans marching out in front that they didn't know how to fight, so they just started fighting each other. But somehow, some way, God did a miracle, and those armies defeated themselves. What a powerful, powerful story that is about the, the power of worship. Because more than anything else, listen, more than anything else, worship gets the attention of God. That's Jehoshaphat's story. Story number two is David's story. Little backstory here. King David and his army had gone out to fight against an enemy nation while they're out fighting the, that, that battle. Another enemy nation, knowing this, circles around and comes into the city that David and his army had marched out of. So the only ones left there are the women and children. Another army, as, the, as David's army is fighting in battle, another army comes in and destroys their city, right? And leaves nothing there but smoldering buildings and rubble. They kidnapped all the women and children. Three days later, David and his army arrived back home and see nothing but destroyed buildings and smoke and rubble left. Let's read it. 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 and 2. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had, raised, had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. So David and his guys are coming back from battle. They're all happy, excited, celebrating their victory over the battle that they were in. They've, cut, they've been gone three days, and the guys are all excited about getting back home, seeing their wives and kids. But as they get closer to home, they see some smoke rising off in the distance. And as they get closer, they realize that the smoke that they're seeing is from their hometown. Let's read it, 1 Samuel 30, verses 3 and 4. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud, until they had no strength left to weep. Anyone ever had a day like that? You just, you just, you wept so much, you didn't have any strength left, didn't know what else to do. Where you experienced something so tragic, so devastating, that you wept till you had no strength left. But for David, it got even worse. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. 
David's army is so ticked at David, blaming him for what had happened, right? that they were about to turn on him. So, so not only was David distraught about what had happened to his home and his family, on top of that, his own men were about to turn on him. Well, you talk about having a terrible, horrible, not good, very bad day. David was having one right here. Anyone ever had one of those? Terrible, horrible, not very good, bad day. Yeah. But watch what David does. It's very powerful here. Powerful lesson, so don't miss it. It says that David wept and mourned and cried until he had no strength left, but David found strength in the Lord his God. How? How'd you do that, David? How'd you find strength in the Lord? Well, let's read on in verse 7. Then David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Ephod. Ephod is an Old Testament symbol of worship. It was, it was a robe-like garment that was put on before coming before and consulting with or worshiping God. The prophet Isaiah confirmed this in one of his many messianic prophecies, how one of the promises of the Messiah that he was going, when he came, he was going to give us in Isaiah 61 verse 3, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness or instead of a spirit of despair. The Old English says, when the Messiah comes, he'll give us a garment of praise for the spirit of, and watch this next word, heaviness. I like that because sometimes when you're at such a low place spiritually, emotionally, mentally, the best way to describe it is just a heaviness. You just, you know, there's so many things, you can't pinpoint one thing, you just, you just feel this heaviness, right? During those times, we can put on our ephod. We can put on our worship. Turn to the person next to you and say, you need to put on your worship. We can find strength when we have a God encounter and draw near to God through our praise and worship. Try it, folks. I'm telling you, it works. It's hard to stay defeated and discouraged when you focus on God and begin praising him. It worked for Jehoshaphat. It worked for David. You know how else it worked for him? This is story number three. It worked for a couple of guys named Paul and Silas. This is Paul and Silas' story. A little bit of backstory here. Paul and Silas were in Macedonia, which today is called North Macedonia. It's located just north of Greece. But Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel one day, and a young lady, who the Bible tells us was demon-possessed, started following them around, mocking and disrupting them. Finally, Paul had enough. He turned to the gal and cast the demon out of her, which was a good thing, right? The problem was this young lady was being trafficked by others who were using her demonic influence to make money by fortune-telling. Well, when those who were trafficking her realize what's happened, they go looking for Paul and Silas. And here's what happened in Acts 16, verses 19 and 20. When her owners, this demon-possessed girl, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, oh, the gravy trains dried up. When they realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods beat for casting a demon out of a, a young lady. Paul and Silas are beaten. It's about to get worse. Verse 23, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Verse 24, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, here's another terrible, horrible, not very good, bad day, isn't it? For Paul. And up until that point, this was probably the worst day of their lives. But that's not how the story ends. Let's read on because Paul and Silas are about to have a God encounter. And like Jehoshaphat and like David, it would happen through worship. Verse 25, Acts 16, about midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And then we're given this interesting bit of information. Watch this. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine being one of those other prisoners, being awakened at midnight by someone singing praises? What the? What is that? About that time, the floors and walls start shaking. The doors flew open. Then all the prisoner cha- prisoners' chains and shackles came loose. All that, listen, dear ones, all that happened when God's people, in the midst of the worst day of their lives, instead of choosing to get ticked, out, ticked off at God, instead of choosing to feel sorry for themselves and sulk and blame God, they chose to worship. Why? Why? Because this is how we fight our battles. That's why. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone, look at that, everyone's chains came, not just Paul and Silas, everyone's chains came loose. So Paul and Silas's worship didn't just help them, it helped everyone that was around them too. Paul and Silas began to worship and suddenly, how many of you could use a suddenly? Suddenly, right? Here's the thing though. Suddenly's only come after we begin to worship. Suddenly's come after we begin to worship. So each Sunday when we begin to worship, regardless of where you're at spiritually, emotionally, regardless of what you might or might not be going through, go ahead and, and, and like David, put on your ephod, put on your worship, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness because the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you might be dealing with something that they need to be set free from. And God, listen, God just might want to use you and the overflow of your worship to help bring encouragement and deliverance to them. One time, Sue and I were babysitting some of our grandkids and and they wanted to play hide and seek. Who would have thought that Gramps, at age 65, would be playing the same game that he used to play as a kid? The circle of life, people. That's the circle of life. But the goal of hide and seek is to be found, right? Otherwise, I'd still be hid, right? Because I found some good hiding places. But you know how the game works. There's that quiet, hesitant, unsure, even scary part of the searching as you go seeking, you know, because each door you look behind, is is someone going to be there, right? You look underneath the bed, you kind of hesitate to look underneath there, right? Someone might be there to surprise you. But see, this is what makes the game so fun. It's not, it's not the hiding. It's the seeking and the finding. That's what makes hide and seek so fun, right? Because look, when Gramps comes out, he's coming out. And he ain't coming out quiet. That's what makes that game so fun. Our grandkids know when they find Gramps, they're going to know it. In the same way, God plays his own game of hide and seek with us, and he's not trying to be hard to find, not at all. In fact, just like Gramps, he wants us to find him. To have, to have the joy of, of, first of all, seeking him, then the exceeding joy of actually finding him. But he can hide all he wants. If we never seek, guess what? We'll never find. We'll never find him. So this morning, the invitation of God is, Do you want to play hide and seek with God? Because according to Jesus, our heavenly father is drawn towards those who are drawn to him, those who seek 
him. So our options are we can seek him and worship him the way Jesus said we should. We can drive into that parking lot Sunday morning, click, 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 and come in here and, you know, right? Or we can come in here and do the cat routine. No, 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 you love, you, I'm make, I'm make you love me, God. But when you start seeking him, I mean earnestly seeking him, you start giving him your life, your energy, your passion. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to peek behind that door underneath that bed. And, hey! You found me. And you're going to be scared for about five seconds. But then you know what? Then you're going to say, let's play again. Let's play again, right? Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. As true as this verse is, the opposite is true as well. If we don't give it our all, if we don't seek him with all our heart, guess what? We won't find him. We won't find him. Listen to how the message paraphrase translates this. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. I love that. I'm telling you, dear ones, you start following hard after God and it will rock your world in a great way. But if you want to keep doing the halfway thing, taking the cat approach, all right, go for it. I'm just telling you, you won't like it because you're going to come a point where it not only becomes boring, but it's going to suck the life out of you because God isn't attracted to that type of worship. God set it up this way, a way that he, that he is drawn to, sincere, yes, but also passionate and exciting, life-giving worship. So what exactly is worship? I mean, what does it look like? Well, to help us answer that, I want us to look at the one we're giving our worship to, Jesus. One day, a religious leader, a teacher of the law, this is, this is how he's described as a teacher of the law. He came to Jesus and asked a question. Mark 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Notice, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this is why I can confidently say that what we're talking about this morning is probably the most important thing that you can talk about with regards to your relationship with God because Jesus distills down everything he taught and represented to this next statement in verse 29, Mark 12, 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here it is. You want to know what's most important about our relationship with God according to Jesus? The Lord... Love the Lord your God with all your heart. How's the song go? I don't have much, but I have a heart that beats for you. And with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, all your heart and soul. Jesus says, look, if you want to show that you really love me, I need all of you including your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, worship is best expressed through our affection that we demonstrate. God, God is just like anyone else that we love. We, we, need, we can't just tell him. He, we need to show him that we love him. You know, if I, tell, if I tell Sue, honey, you know I love you, don't you? But don't expect me to take you out. Don't expect me to take you shopping. Right? Don't expect me to hug you or give any kissy face. or anything. In fact, I might even sleep in the other bedroom. But I'm just letting you know I, I do love you, right? What does that mean? Those words ring hollow, right? Because love is a verb. Love is a verb. It's something we do. You know, one of the most significant things that Jesus did 
that is lost on most people is how he took a word that had always been understood as a noun and he made it a verb. That love is something that we do. That's why worship should be expressed, a demonstration of our affection. Why do you think the largest book in the Bible, 150 chapters, are filled with expressions and demonstrations of how worship is expressed? I mean, could God, could God make it any more obvious, right? It's like he said, here, you want to know what true worship looks like? Read this. And then after 149 chapters where we're given different demonstrations of worship and what it looks like, right? What it looks like when we're happy, what it looks like when we're sad, what it looks like when things are going well, what it looks like when things aren't going well. After 149 chapters of that, this is what worship looks like. Then to sort of summarize and punctuate all those examples and expressions of worship, the psalmist ties a, bows around, ties a bow around it with this statement in Psalm 150, Let's just read that here together. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals, but not just sounding cymbals, but praise him with loud clashing cymbals. And then his final instructions regarding worship. The very last verse of the very last chapter let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Not long ago, I was talking to someone about the church and some of the changes that we've made over the past couple of years, and including going to two services now on Sunday mornings. And they said, oh, so, so you do a contemporary and a traditional service. I said, well, that depends, depends on what you mean by tra uh, traditional and contemporary. You know, Because I happen to view both of our services as, as traditional. Because 3,000 years ago, see, your hymn books were written about 200 years ago. 2,800 years before that, it talked about worshiping God loudly, clapping, lifting hands. So yeah, we've got two traditional services. That's what we have here. All your mind. How does someone worship God with all their mind? By focusing their attention on God. And the best way to do this is by beginning each day. I mean from the moment you wake up, before you check the weather app, before you check your bracket. <laughs> One of mine's a dumpster fire right now. I had Ohio State going, winning the championship. So anyway, before you check the weather app, before you check your bracket, before you check anything, open up your Bible app. Read the proverb for the day. Read some Psalms. Spend some time with him. Hang out with God. Confess your total dependence on him. Tell God that you are totally depending on him to make it through the day. And then live throughout the day that way. Again, when you really love someone, there should be evidence of that. When was the last time? You, you married couples. You really want to impress your spouse. You guys, you really want to impress your wife. You really want to make their day. Give them a call at, at, from work sometime and just say, hey. Yeah. No, I just want to say, hey, I... See how you're doing. And, and then wait a couple seconds while I get up off the floor. No, who wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of a call like that? No, I, I just wanted to see how you're doing, tell you I love you. Right? You want to blow their mind? Just call them and say, I just want to tell you I miss you and I love you. When was the last time you, you blew God's mind? True worship means having him on our mind. All your strength. We worship God by using our God-given talents and abilities. I'm worshiping God doing what I'm doing right now. Preaching, some of you worship God by standing outside holding a sign, smiling and greeting people. Some of you worship God by changing dirty diapers back there. And thank you, Jesus, for those. Some of you worship God by teaching. 
Some of you worship God with your strength doing that. And then you come in here and you worship God with your heart and soul in here. That's why we, that's why we promote worship one, serve one. Worship one service, serve in the other service. We want, to, we want you to be a well-rounded worshiper, right? So in closing, I want to give you three questions to answer. What do you love most? Because that deals with your heart and soul. What do you think about most? That deals with your mind. And what do you do most? That relates to our strength. See, these are important questions. Here's why. The answer to these questions will reveal who your God is. Because if the answer to those isn't Jesus Christ, then my next question is, how's that God working for you? How's that God serving you? Probably not very well. And look, God, God's not opposed to us loving other things, but he is opposed to us loving other things, anything more, anything more than him. And each of these God encounters we looked at this morning, these folks were having the worst day of their life up until that moment. Yet in each instance, they chose to worship God. And just like Jesus said he would do, he rewarded those who diligently sought him with healing and victory, and he'll do the same for you. If we'll posture ourselves to have divine encounters with him through our praise and worship, no matter how dark, how tragic, how fearful and difficult of a day we might be having, if we'll default to worshiping him with our whole being, instead of getting mad and angry at him, if, if we'll learn to lavish love on him the same way that a puppy does on its owner, it'll be a game changer in your relationship with him. Three weeks from today, we're having our family fun fest and water baptism service. You know, I can't think of a better time, a better way to have a God encounter and tell God that you're ready to go all in with him than by being water baptized as he instructed us. In fact, the Bible tells us that water baptism is a picture, a sign to the world that we have decided to go all in with God. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, have never been water baptized, you need to do that. Not because I said so, but because Jesus said you needed to do that. So if that's you, let me or Kyle know, and we'll make sure that we get you signed up for that special and powerful service. Let me pray for you. God, I'm asking you to, to move on people's hearts even now. Give them the boldness and faith to begin to trust you more fully and completely. To quit test driving their relationship with you and jump into the deep end of a personal loving relationship with you, Lord. I pray that people would be willing to begin worshiping you the way that you ask us to worship you with our whole being, with energy and passion, and with the gifts and talents that you've given us. And as we do, I pray that you would honor the promise of your word, and we would encounter you like Jehoshaphat and the people of God did, like David did, and like Paul and Silas did, with victory and deliverance. And Lord, for those who might be struggling in their relationship with you right now, those who have never taken that first step of faith by inviting you into their heart and lives, or maybe they did at one point, but that relationship is not where it should be. And they know it. They know it. If that's you, if, you'd, if you would be willing to just pray this prayer, it would be my honor to lead you back or to the Lord God who died for you. If you would just pray this prayer with me, say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me so that I might have the promise of eternal life. So forgive me of my sins, those things I've done in word or deed that have separated me from you and hindered my relationship with you. Come live inside of me, inside of my heart, by your Holy Spirit, and help me begin living my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.